You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone talks about the energy crisis, you know, how we'll power our society after fossil fuels run out. I certainly worry about energy, my personal energy. Here, use some of your personal energy and grab this box. Okay, wait. Okay, you got that? Okay, you got that under control. (laughs) Maybe your personal energy. But really what we need to do as a society is tap into alternative energy sources. Yeah, you're probably thinking wind and solar. But what about those spots where there's some powerful, mysterious, maybe even weird energy source? I mean, if we could tap into those. Wait, don't forget this box over here. Okay, got it. Right, where psychic energy is concentrated like... I don't know. Like vanilla extract or syrup? (laughs) No, that's weird. Okay, but some sort of concentrated psychic energy and maybe other types of weird energy, too. Well, we're on the hunt for them. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley, and we're going on a road trip for The Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. And I think we have the car packed. Wait, what's in in this box here? Well, there's a Geiger counter and hard hats. How about a map? (laughs) A map. That's so old school. But we do have VPS. Vortex positioning system. VPS? Where did you get this VPS? Well, it came with a rental car. I mean, it's a series of vortex-sensing satellites that orbit the Earth and... Ooh, and snacks. I have broccoli chips and your... Cool Ranch lard biscuits. That's gross. I think we're ready. Okay, let's get in. There are strange things happening in the world, just not where I am. But we're going to go find them. Okay, let's hit the highway. And fire up the VPS. Okay, let's make sure the chips are up here with us, okay? Welcome to your personal vortex positioning system. Quite a tenor he has. Initiating. All right, we're all set. You are now driving down a highway at night. It's not night. In Japan, suddenly a mysterious bonsai tree. Uh, It's not night, and it's not Japan. Let's fix these coordinates, because we're in Mountain View, California, VPS system. Calibrating. You are now driving down a highway in the day in California. Take us to the nearest energy vortex. The closest energy vortex is not far away. It's down a stretch of highway. Two miles from here, turn right. He's kind of intense, isn't he? Well, let's just pay attention to him. Okay, following the directions. It will be interesting to experience these mysterious energy spots. Figure out what makes them tick, or swirl, or whatever. I mean, after all, according to the reports, there's a lot of weird energy involved. You are headed to a house, an abode with an impenetrable puzzle. 
Who lives here? Oh, just parked a car. Rooms unfinished, twisted hallways, a door to nowhere. It's the Winchester Mystery House. What mysterious force drove one woman to follow such a bizarre architectural plan? And I certainly heard of this place. Yeah, it's big. What is the mystery here? Well, I don't know. That's what we have to find out. I mean, we've got to find out just how mysterious this incredibly complex structure is. Okay, let's go inside. Welcome to the Winchester Mystery House. My name is Mike Borg. I'm the group sales coordinator and an operation supervisor here at the house. Well, Mike, this is a pretty impressive structure, at least from the outside. And the inside here uh, is impressive as well. It looks like there are endless rooms here. How many rooms does this place really have? There's approximately 160 rooms in the mansion, but it's hard to get an exact count. <laughs> and they're not normal rooms, I have to say. They're sort of quirky. Yeah, they're pretty odd. A lot of them are small, which is the Victorian design, but they also have some strange features. What are the strange features are in the house? There is a staircase that just goes right up to the ceiling. There are a couple of doors that lead nowhere, such as to just drops from several stories. But well, what's the explanation for that, Mike? The, all the anomalies here, that this strange idiosyncratic architecture was Mrs. Winchester, who had this house built, as I understand it, was she just a bad architect? That's one of the theories. She was not formally trained in architecture, but she obviously loved it as a hobby, so she may just not have been very good at it. But there are other theories as well, the main ones being that she was a spiritualist, and that she believed that by building haphazardly and randomly that she would confuse the spirits that she believed were after her, which were the spirits of the people killed by the Winchester rifles that her family made. Okay, so this was Sarah Winchester, and she had married into the uh, Winchester family, the people that had actually built up the Winchester Repeating Arms Manufacturing Company in Connecticut, is that right? That's correct. She married William Winchester, who was the son of Oliver Winchester, who started the company. She was into the Winchester family. What was she doing out here in California? Why wasn't she back uh, on the East Coast where the company was? After the deaths of their infant daughter, Annie, and then William himself several years later, she was uh, a lonely widow, and she reportedly consulted a psychic. And the psychic told her that she needed to move west and start a construction project to appease those angry spirits. Any reported ghost sightings or strange occurrences? We do have sightings. We have people that uh, visit and then send in photographs of uh, orbs that they've discovered. People do report walking through cold spots and things like that. Many of our employees have stories. So there have been a lot of sightings over the years, yes. And I understand that just outside here, there's a, a door to nowhere. That sounds mysterious. What is that? Yes, the famous door to nowhere is visible both inside and outside the house and it's a door on the second story. It's about 12 feet up from the concrete path below with no staircase. So if you were to open that door and not watch where you're going, you'd just drop and crack your head open. And so the idea is if the spirits were passing that way, they would also just stop or drop and not go any further? We believe, yeah. We're here at the famous staircase to the ceiling in the mansion. And if you take a few steps up there and look to the left, you'll see the staircase just ends and there's nowhere to go. Can I can I do that now? Yeah. Okay, I'll take, take I'll take a look. It just goes up. We'll take a look at this, Seth. It did nothing. Yeah, well, that's right. It just goes right into the ceiling, so you have to take shorter and shorter steps. <laughs> <laughs> and you never get where you're going. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, certainly eccentric. 
definitely. That's the word. How do you know what you know about Sarah Winchester? Are there documents? Are there, what are the sources for what we understand about her life? The main sources when we started doing the tours 80 plus years ago, shortly after her death, were her former employees and locals. That's what people had said about her? Yes. Mrs. Winchester didn't leave any writings that we're aware of, other than a few letters back and forth to her attorney that we have in our museum. There was, I believe, Mike, a, a seance held here by Harry Houdini at one point. And Harry Houdini, at least for a while, was kind of into the occult. I mean, he thought that maybe, you know, maybe there was something to it. And he, in fact, advised his own wife when he died. He said, you know, check for me on, uh, I guess, Halloween and see if I can contact you psychically. What, what, was, the, what was that like? What, what happened when Houdini was here? Houdini did come here, and he reportedly held a seance and didn't find any direct evidence of anything happening, but it's hard to know whether he was biased or not, because his whole tour at that time was about disproving the occult, and who knows. Did Sarah Winchester have regular seances in the house? And if so, what room? Yes, there is a special seance room in the mansion. It's pretty close to smack dab in the center of the building, and um, she is said by her employees to have held a seance every single night and communed with the spirits. And the result the next morning was often that whatever they were building on had to be changed because the spirits wanted it to be changed or they didn't like it. My goodness. Well, uh, remind me not to hire spirits to design my next house. The remodel that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, you know, I'm not sure I'd have terribly much use for those stairwells that uh, don't go anywhere. Well, Mike, thank you very much for uh, showing us uh, the, the mystery house here and uh, for talking with us. Yeah, thank you. And you may have to show us the way out of here, too. <laughs> yeah, don't try it yourself. You'll get lost. Thank you for coming. Sarah Winchester, driven by a mysterious unknown force or an imagination run wild. Is the house a haven for apparitions or the ectoplasmic machinations of the mind? Well, yes, that's what I was wondering. I think we need some perspective here. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that the Winchester house really is a home for architecturally challenged spirits. But, you know, on the other hand, Molly, I have to say that polls show that about one third of Americans believe in spirits and ghosts. And obviously, if you have ghosts, they're going to hang out somewhere, and it might be in a haunted place, because that's the definition of a haunted place. <laughs> well, there is someone who checks these things out professionally. Paranormal investigator Jim Underdown's job is to visit some old haunts. There are a lot of locations that have sort of resident ghosts or resident spirits. The only difference about the Winchester house is that you know, they make a lot of money from people visiting there, and it's got a lot of stories associated with it, but that there is a, an alleged spirit in a particular location is not an unusual claim. Now, are we talking about haunted houses, the idea that you have a house and there's some strange happenings there, some strange energy or something concentrated in that in that one building? Yeah, I think the belief is that when someone dies, typically when someone dies, the energy that was once part of their living self uh, remains in the location and maybe never leaves. And that's what most people think ghosts or spirits are. Do we have any idea why the energy would remain in some cases and not in, in the case of other people passing on? No, because theoretically, you know, there should be lots of ghosts everywhere 
you know, any house that's of any age in this country has probably had somebody die in it. So you would think ghosts would be a lot more rampant than they are now. Now, you are a paranormal investigator. You're not a ghost buster, but you're a paranormal investigator. So when strange things happen, you get a phone call. When people claim that there's some strange energy or happening in their house, what sort of events are they reporting? Yeah, sometimes they actually see some sort of an image or an apparition. Uh, sometimes people are reporting things moving or in different places when they've left the room. And a lot of the times they're just looking for answers. They're sort of scared and they want to know why they're having this experience or if the ghost is real. How does this begin? You get a phone call from someone who is upset and what do they say to you and what happens next? Um, One woman, we went to uh, an investigation in, in West Hollywood where she had three different occurrences happen within a 48-hour span or something. She had just moved into an apartment, and she called us up. She knew that we did these types of investigations, and she was just kind of freaked out about these occurrences that happened within a short time of her moving into this new apartment. So she wanted some sort of explanation, and she asked if we could be of any assistance. And what were the strange things that were happening in, in this woman's new apartment? She had three things happen. First thing that happened was a light diffuser fell from the ceiling with no apparent cause. The second thing is she smelled some odd odors that were not originating in her own apartment and had no idea where these odors could come from. And the third thing was there was an unidentified liquid that appeared in the middle of her kitchen floor, and it was next to no source that could have produced the unidentified liquid. So how did you solve these mysteries that were occurring in her house? The first thing we did was we looked at this light diffuser that was uh, hanging in her apartment, and it turned out that the frame was only like a millimeter smaller than the diffuser itself. So it was just barely holding this thing up inside its frame. So a door slamming or even a change in pressure in the room, like when the heat kicked on or something, um, would be enough to make this thing move just a little bit and make it fall out of its frame. So you solved that. Now, there are also strange odors to be accounted for and that strange liquid on the floor. Yeah, the strange odors turned out to be real easy. We just we talked to the manager of the building on the way out, and uh, we said, do you have any idea why this would happen? And she said, well, they just painted the apartment next door the day before. So that pretty much covered that one. Paint smells just permeated through to the other apartment. Uh, the liquid on the floor was a little bit tougher. We pulled the refrigerator out and noticed that the coils on the back of the refrigerator had frost on them. And then when the refrigerator kicked off during its normal cycle, the frost melted and produced a little stream, which ended up, guess where, in the middle of the kitchen. But the stream evaporated pretty quickly, so it was only the puddle that remained, and it looked like it just came out of nowhere. Now, what is the role of one's state of mind of the people who say that they see ghosts or they feel that their house is haunted in their experience of a haunting? It's a matter of orientation where where does your mind go to when you see anything that you don't understand or that presents a little bit of a puzzle? What is your natural orientation? Do you say, oh, this is a cool mystery, let's try to solve how this happened? 
or do you say, wow, this is really freaky. There must be something really weird or paranormal happening. So I think with people like this, like this woman had been to, she had been to uh, psychics before and tarot card readers. And so she had a, a, her orientation was to believe in the paranormal. And when she was confronted with something that she didn't understand, that's where her mind went to. Now, what about when people claim to feel cold spots in rooms or just a strange energy or they get a vibe that makes them very uncomfortable? How are those explained? Yeah, this is a problem with I have with uh, these Ghostbusters and all these people because they attribute a cold spot or a fluctuation in a magnetic field or some other sort of unrelated effect happening to a ghost or a spirit. When in fact, cold spots and magnetic field, fluctuation of magnetic fields and all these other things that they think are ghosts happen on their own all the time anyway. And it's, and it's just because of natural causes. Now, you said Ghostbusters. Aren't you a Ghostbuster? You're a, you call yourself a paranormal investigator. What's the difference? Yeah, we're just, we investigate these things. We, we try not to form any opinions before we get there. And I think a lot of these ghost chaser shows are believers. So that's why, you know, every time they see any little thing or hear any little thing, they attribute that to a ghost. And we're, we need a little bit more evidence than that. <laughs> Have you ever been spooked yourself in investigating? No, not for a long time. I've been in the catacombs in Rome and in, in the underneath the city and and Edinburgh and all these really sort of spooky places. And it just <laughs> doesn't affect me anymore. I just... I try to enjoy it for what it is. <laughs> Jim Underdown, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure to travel with Jim Underdown, Executive Director of the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles. Maybe Sarah Winchester, the Winchester Mystery House, was in touch with spirits from the other side. Or maybe she was just eccentric and consumed by sorrow because of the death of her husband and her child. Well, that's right. It may be that there are no haunted houses, only haunted people. I say onward. That's to, right. To the, to the next energy vortex. Turn left. A very mysterious left. And don't be left without your wits. I think you're supposed to turn left here, Seth. Oh, okay. It's Skeptic Check, Energy Vortex on Big Picture Science. Hmm, Molly seems to have drifted off. She's probably building up energy for wherever that weird VPS device sends us next. But, you know, while there are mysterious locales here on Earth, I I don't think our world has a monopoly on such things. One of my colleagues, Cynthia Phillips, studies Enceladus, which is a small moon of Saturn that has strange spots in its southern hemisphere spewing icy water into space. These special places might be where we could search for microbes, life on a moon around Saturn. It's easy to support such nifty investigations by becoming a Team SETI member at SETI.org. And, of course, if you do become a member, an email to the radio show staff at BigPictureScience at SETI.org will encourage us to send you a photo of our numerically small but morally large team. SETI.org and BigPictureScience at SETI.org. Really, there's no mystery. It looks like I need to pass a truck here. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Molly, while we're going to this next Vortex destination. Where science and the supernatural collide. Turn left and merge 400 feet. Hey, you want some, um, broccoli chips? Uh, yeah, they really look good. No thanks. Okay. You're telling me a story. I'm sorry. What was the story? Oh, well, you know, Phil Plate has been investigating this recent Russian launch of a probe that was supposed to go, you know, all the way to Mars. Why? What happened? Well, it, it turns out it didn't make it. In fact, not only did it not make it, but, you know, a rocket failed and it didn't get any higher than maybe 250 miles above Moscow. Now, what's kind of interesting here is that, according to officials, there's some thought that something mysterious took place to sabotage this space shot. Now we depart from the highway, and all that we know, perhaps forever. Check oil in 20 miles. Well, our Vortex positioning system is surely on the ball here. Yeah, or off its rocker. (laughs) One or the other. In fact, the Russian explanation has to do with an energy vortex in a, in a way, because scientifically speaking, you can concentrate energy. I mean, radar does it, lasers do it. Some people have charged that such a concentrated bit of energy sabotaged the Mars-bound grunt. Well, the grunt is actually Phobos grunt. It's a Russian space probe. Grunt means ground or dirt in Russian, and it was a probe that was going to go to Mars put a lander on the Martian moon Phobos and return a sample of that back to Earth. But it didn't quite work. How far did it get? Did it get anywhere near to Mars? Sadly, it actually never got out of Earth orbit. What happened was it was a three-stage rocket. The first two stages worked great, but the third one failed to ignite. And it wasn't that far up above the surface of the Earth. And even though it's space, there's still a little bit of air out there, and it basically bled the energy out of that space probe, and it wound up falling back to Earth. So it really barely made it out of the driveway. Yeah, it's like it's like planning a cross-country tour and, and smashing into your garage door. You know, it's it's kind of sad. It's, it's really too bad. A lot of people worked on this. And, uh, you know, Russia's had a lot of problems with this. They've, they've had about 20, roughly, probes that they've tried to get to Mars. And only a couple of them have been successful, and even those were only partially successful. Haven't some of the Russian officials suggested that perhaps this was uh, something else going awry, maybe even sabotage? Yes, that's the part that's kind of been baffling me. Vladimir Popovkin, who is the chief administrator of the Russian space agency, Roscosmos. Now, now, mind you, this is like the head of NASA speaking. He kind of intimated that foreign enemies, foreign governments that might have been behind this without really saying who or what, which was bizarre. And a Russian newspaper just talked to you know a contact, a, someone in the Russian space agency, they didn't say who, and they suggested basically that it was U.S. radar that may have damaged the satellite. Do you think that a radar beam or any other kind of beam that we could have sent in the direction of their spacecraft could have disabled that third stage of the rocket? It's it's possible, perhaps, that you could do that. But when you've lost that many probes going to Mars and, and there are just other, all these other problems with just simply getting into space, I think looking for extraordinary explanations is probably not the place to look. Yeah, well, I mean, one shouldn't underestimate the difficulty. I mean, you're trying to send something to a, to a, a small rock. Phobos is a pretty small rock. You could walk around it in a couple of hours, I suppose. But on the other hand... 
suggesting that it isn't anything they did wrong. It's something that somebody else did to them. Did that prompt any reaction from the West? Well, a lot of newspapers and you know blog uh, writers like me kind of rolled our eyes, and it's like, really? That's what you're going to go with? Sabotage? The thing is, you know, space probes fail. They're incredibly complex machines. Anything from a fuel pump to a frayed wire can make these things short out and stop or whatever. If these things happen. I think pointing fingers in this case is ridiculous. Phil Plate, thanks so much. Thank you, Seth. Phil Plate stays on top of strange occurrences in his blog, badastronomy.com, on the Discover website. That he does. Okay, I'm getting uh, antsy for the next energy vortex. It <laughs> looks like we're headed south here. To a location that only our VPS knows. Where we can take a peek into a world of bizarre behavior. Where strange things happen and the laws of nature are disobeyed. Hey, we're in Santa Cruz. I wonder if he means civil disobedience. In a world where gravity pulls to the center of the Earth, this inexplicable energy vortex turns that idea on its head. Sounds more like classical physics disobedience. I guess he'll just keep going on and on like that, won't he? Is it a madhouse for tourists or the entrance to a warping of space-time from which you may never escape? Turn right in 500 feet. It seems we're at the mystery spot in Santa Cruz, California. <laughs> it's a strange house. It is strange. I mean, it's just this wooden shack, uh, you know, one or two rooms, and it seems to be all slanted. I mean, the walls are all tilted to the left, and the, and the floor, of course, is perpendicular to the wall, so it's tilted to the left, and, and the floors are really pretty steep. Uh, your furniture would all accumulate. <laughs> it would all collect at the bottom of, of, of the house on that left-hand wall there. And it looks like what the tour guide is doing is putting a plank down that looks like it's tilting up, and he's going to do a little bit of an experiment here to see where this ball rolls. Yeah, yeah, everybody is saying here that that plank is tilted up on the outside and down on the inside. And the idea is that what gravity is doing strange things here, is that it? Yes, the gentleman who's giving the tour said something about a mysterious force that sort of, you know, made that hill we climbed steeper than it really was, some sort of repulsive or attractive force. My name is Wade Hastings, and I am a tour guide at the Mystery Spot. Wade, what's going on here? Any theories? Uh, there are a few theories. One theory is that there is a, actually a pool of magma beneath the Mystery Spot, spinning in the opposite direction as the Earth, which creates what we call a gravitational vortex, which basically throws off your equilibrium. Uh, there's another theory that there's a fault line beneath the Mystery Spot, which leaks out mysterious gas, which we all inhale on the tours, and we are hallucinating all these cool effects. And there's also a theory that probably originated back in the 1960s uh, that is explains this as a alien spacecraft coming down and crash landing here and its engines are still running which explains all these mysterious anti-gravity effects people feel uh, not too sure about that one myself though thank you wade thank you very much for having me i think what the mystery is 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 what it's doing to my stomach seth i had to walk out of that room with all its slants and so forth because i actually feel nauseous and in fact even looking at that house with all its slanted rooms and so forth I feel dizzy. I have to look out into the redwoods. Yeah, well, that's because, you know, your eye is telling you that horizontal is one way, and your inner ear is telling you that horizontal is another way. And when they don't agree, well, you don't feel well. Okay, even though I couldn't stomach it, I noticed that he did some trick with uh, a ball on a plank, and the plank looked like it was tipped up, 
but the ball rolled to the end of it and, and went down. What was going on? Yeah, well, the, the plank looked like one end of it was higher than the other, but it was, in fact, the reverse. The, the, the end that looked higher was actually lower. And the why, problem... Why did it look higher? Because because the plank was sticking out of this tilted house, this house that had slid down this hill a long, long time ago, and it's, you know, completely cattywampus. But I really looked at the plank, and it looked like it was it was pointed up. Yeah, well, that, that's, you know, you can't always believe your eyes. I think that's a, that's a bottom line. On, on the other hand, it could be, you know, a mysterious energy vortex. Were there other funny effects in the house when you were in there? He hung from uh, some hooks on the ceiling, that kind of thing. And, you know, again... Wait, he hung from some hooks on the well, ceiling? Well, we just grabbed His a, own body? Well, I mean, he was hanging just like a chandelier. And you figure a chandelier is going to be hanging vertically in a room. But you judge what's vertical on the basis of the floors and the walls and all that. But here, because they're all slanted, because the floors and walls are all skew, when something hangs, it looks like it's not hanging vertically. It's, you know, it's leaning to the side. So this is really just an optical illusion, what we're experiencing here. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But why would I feel so ill looking at the house and all the slanted walls? It, it actually gives me a bit of a headache. Well, that's because, Molly, your eyes are telling you that vertical is one way on the basis of what you see, but your inner ear is telling you what's vertical on the basis of gravity pulling on the liquid inside it, and the two don't agree, and your brain reacts by turning ill. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards maybe leaving the mystery spot. I'm beginning to wonder about these energy vortexes. I mean, so far, rational explanations for all of them. I know. Where are the supernatural energy pockets that we can tap into for our psychic energy needs or cross through time or space and bend the laws of physics? Where are they? It is a mystery that refuses to die. No, I want to get to the bottom of this mystery that refuses to die. This VPS, Vortex Positioning System, is after all, it's hunting for energy vortices, or however you say it. Right, we're chasing after these energy vortices, or however you say it, not even knowing what they are. Could the truth be stranger than fiction, or a fiction with a strange truth? Is it a strange fiction, but also true, in a fictional kind of way? Wait, I, I have to think. I mean, let's get to the bottom of this, and ask somebody who studies fluids and how such things move. Peter Williams is a hydrodynamicist, and Peter, I know you'll be able to tell us just what the heck is an energy vortex anyway. Actually, I have no idea what an energy vortex is. It, it, it doesn't actually really make sense to me because usually when we think of vortices, we think of something with direction, and energy doesn't really have a direction. But surely there are phenomena in nature where you have a higher, if you will, density of energy. I mean, if, if you were in the eye of a I don't know, a, a cyclone or something like that, wouldn't you, in fact, be in a kind of energy vortex? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you would be in a vortex. I wouldn't necessarily call it an energy vortex. You would definitely be in a vortex. And in that case, there is a whole lot of energy associated with that in the fluid motions. But calling it an energy vortex, um, it's a bit vague and um, not exactly correct. What about the kind of vortexes that people are always describing as if you will, sort of the loci of psychic energy. Right? They're, they're talking about, you know, I, I, I went to this place and there was this vortex of energy there and it really changed my whole lifestyle and improved my life in some way. Well, then I'd say, well, if there's a vortex, what's the axis that it's rotating around? Could you, could you identify that? In which direction is it all flowing and so forth? And I think the answer is, is easily going to be 
they don't know or something really vague. And, and so why in the world are they calling it a vortex? Why don't they call it a local concentration? Why don't they use some other term like a, a quantum or a thingamabob about, you know, why vortex? Uh, well, could you actually have a concentration of psychic energy? I mean, does that make sense? I have no idea because I don't know what psychic energy is. So <laughs> it's a good, a good question. Then I have to ask you about pure energy because, doggone it, I can't think of how many times in Star Trek and other space operas I've heard the term it's pure energy, Captain. I mean, is there impure energy? What, what is pure energy? Is it better? Does it? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the heck that is either. Uh, and actually, you can think about it this way. What is pure matter? Whenever we think of matter, matter always takes some sort of form. It's got to be, you know, it's a two by four or it's a brick or whatever, and it's got to be made out of some stuff, particles. Uh, and the same is true for energy. You don't just have energy by itself. It has to be in, in some form. But surely... Somewhere in the cosmos, there are vortexes. I mean, you know, black holes sound like some sort of vortex. The term vortex is used by scientists. Oh, yes, totally, uh, definitely, uh, especially in the area that I, that I focus on, which is hydrodynamics. So we look at, at fluids and gases and how they flow, and we have plenty of vortices, they, and they're fascinating things to study. I think they're really appealing, partly because they they seem to be these discrete entities that, uh, unlike other things that, that sort of are fuzzy and kind of blobby, vortices are these nice concrete things. But that's usually in the context, for me, of a fluid that's flowing. Uh, that's not the same as vortex of energy. Yeah, okay. So this just refers to the fact that you have fluid perhaps in a, a circular motion or something. I mean, there's an axis of rotation. There's, you know, there's something yeah. happening locally. Yeah, you, you know, uh, it, it's interesting the way vorticity works in fluid dynamics, and it is that sense of rotation. And for reasons that are too complicated to go into, it t that rotation tends to concentrate on lines. So, you know, you get a vortex line that forms a nice funnel in your bathtub or whatnot. Or when you take a spoon and you stir milk into coffee, you get these vortices. Or in the case of hurricanes. And that concentration is, is a fascinating property of them. And maybe that's what people are sort of uh, latching on to. Wow, in a hurricane. I think I'd want to wear Gore-Tex in a vortex. Let me ask you just one last question. You're talking about the spin there of a bathroom drain, and I think nine out of ten people here would say, yes, it goes one direction in the northern hemisphere and another direction in the southern hemisphere. And some of them would even know the term Coriolis force. Any truth to it? Uh, well, only if people get out of their bathtubs differently in the southern hemisphere than in the northern hemisphere. And now, it's true for hurricanes, they rotate uh, different ways depending on which hemisphere you're in. But for the bathtub, uh, no. The Coriolis effect is much, much, much too small to make any difference there. <laughs> All right. Well, Peter Williams, thank you so much for uh, enlightening me about vortexes or lack thereof. Thank, thank you very much. It was fun. Peter Williams is a hydrodynamicist at Agilent Technologies. Okay, so there's no such thing as an energy vortex. Too bad. Yeah, well, well, at least not in the sense that everyone seems to talk about. Shall we uh, get back on the road? Let's just keep the VPS off for just a little while, okay? Yeah, maybe the mystery spot has messed up its internal compass. We can turn it back on and give it another chance a little bit later. Else, How else will we find this local concentration of energy, as Peter Williams refers to it? It's Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Looks like we're coming out of the trees. I guess we're back in the prosaic spots of California. We're coming out of the trees? Well, yes, that's right, like sap. <laughs> well, we're driving along on this hunt for the energy vortex, even though we know there may not be such a thing. But, of course, maybe there's still some spots where energy behaves in strange waves. Yeah, maybe now that that vortex positioning system has cooled off a little bit. That's right. I'll just turn it back on. 
Initializing. All right, well, we're, we're headed north here. Go north. Well, that's encouraging. It's back on track. Hey, want some chips? The, the, the broccoli chips. Yeah, no, I'm allergic to uh, green vegetables, even in chip form. They're actually pretty good. Go north 2,389 miles to the Irving Islands near the Boothia Peninsula. Turn left at the Big Rock. What? That's in the Canadian Arctic. Does this thing realize we're in a car? That is weird. What's at the Boothia Peninsula? Well, there are some bears and a lot of Eskimos and an awful lot of ice. Now, the North Geomagnetic Pole used to be there, although it's been moving northward now towards Siberia. It's moving at about, I don't know, a couple of miles every month. Uh, but that's an interesting place in a way, and you do get all the magnetic field lines crowded together, so that's a special spot. I mean, you get these lights in the sky, the aurora borealis. The, the problem is it's going to take us 42 days to get there by boat. Well, if we can't visit, let's see if space and planetary physicist Rob Lillis can tell us something about these magnetic poles. They sound special. If they're not energy vortices, maybe they're local concentrations of weird energy at the North and the South Pole. Just what are the magnetic poles? The way we define them in in science is it is simply the point on the surface of the Earth where the Earth's magnetic field is closest to being absolutely vertical, meaning meaning straight up and down from the perpendicular to the surface. And there's one at the North Pole and one at the South Pole. But the magnetic South Pole and the magnetic North Pole are s- separate from the proper North and South Pole. That is correct, yes. Um, the geographic North Pole is simply the point at which you're not rotating anymore. The Earth's rotation axis goes through the North and South geographic poles. The magnetic poles just happen to be somewhat near the geographic poles, but not exactly. They're still a couple of thousand kilometers and separated away from them. Now, are there special properties at these poles? If I could ever make my way down to the magnetic South Pole, I don't know, would all my hair stand on end or would magnets cling to me? I have no idea, but I imagine that there's a special energy at the South or North magnetic pole. Again, there's, there's nothing particularly special about those locations. The only practical consequence for you if you were there is that your compass would be going haywire because the way most people hold a compass is they hold it horizontally. And if you're in most places on, on the Earth, the direction of the compass points along the direction of the magnetic field line, which at, say, the equator, points more or less north-south, and that's how compasses work. <clears throat> if you're at the magnetic north pole, the compass is not going to be able to align itself along the magnetic field line if you're holding it horizontally the way most people hold it, so it won't tell you anything of use. It'll, it'll be sort of going around in circles and going haywire. It's not going to give you any useful information. Okay, so it sounds like there's not a suite of phenomena that occur at the south pole or the north pole, but they're not without any special properties whatsoever, are they? They're important in terms of uh, the relationship between the Earth and its uh, space environment. The areas around the magnetic north and south poles, within a couple of thousand kilometers of the north and south magnetic poles, you have what are called open magnetic field lines. Now, magnetic field lines are simply lines along which the magnetic field is pointing. They're not actually real. They're just just a way that uh, we use to represent the direction of magnetic force. However, if you are within a couple thousand kilometers of of the north or south magnetic poles, the magnetic field lines around you are are open. And what I mean by that is that they are connected at one end to the interplanetary magnetic field out in the solar wind, and at at the other end they are connected to the Earth. 
And uh, the reason this is important is because when you have open magnetic field lines, this, this allows charged particles from space, ultimately from the sun, it gives those charged particles access to the Earth's atmosphere. And so at these open magnetic field regions, you can get charged particles from the sun causing what are called the aurora, the northern lights. Have you ever witnessed the northern lights? The closest I ever got was I was on a plane from, I believe, San Francisco to London, and the pilot told us to look out the left side of the plane, and way, way off in the distance, you could see sort of a shimmering. And there are many colors, too. And what causes the colors and the shimmering? The shimmering is caused by the fact that the source of the particles is not steady. It sort of comes in waves and the magnetic disturbances in the solar wind can sort of buffet the Earth's magnetic field and slightly shift the locations at which the particles can precipitate, that's the word we use, into the atmosphere. And so that's the shimmering. The different colors come from the fact that when the charged particles strike particles in our upper atmosphere, it excites those particles by raising electrons to higher atomic states. When those atomic states decay, that's when light gets emitted. And so different sorts of atomic states decay and give different wavelengths of light. Some are green, some are red, some are white, some are blue. When there are phenomena that occur on the Earth, people sometimes attribute it to magnetic field lines or something, that it seems like strange magnetic phenomena is the reason why objects might be floating across a room. Does any of this seem like a plausible explanation for some of these weird happenings? In a word, no, I, I don't think so. But you can sometimes get very strong what are called currents in the Earth's ionosphere, which can cause magnetic disturbances. They could cause compasses to briefly malfunction. They create magnetic field changes much smaller than the strength of the Earth's field. And so generally, compasses should never really stop working. And you can't see of any mechanism by which it could be localized in a house or localized so that in that area there would just be a whole other set of phenomena happening? Uh, <clears throat> not in a way that would change with time. If you had an area that had a very strong concentration of magnetic rocks, you could get a pretty different local magnetic field. But that magnetic field wouldn't change because those rocks are not moving. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Rob Lillis is a space and planetary physicist at the University of California Space Sciences Laboratory. Okay, well, the magnetic poles are interesting spots hooking up the Earth with the sun, but they're not supernatural. Even if the aurora are supernaturally beautiful. Okay, let's leave this VPS off. Turn right. Initiating a phantom presence. It's back a on. Curious Sounds happening. like it has curious Turn wiring. Left. Fine, fine. Well, I mean, let's see what this last spot is. We're almost home anyway. All right, let me program this. Seth, pull over if you're going to do that. It's just safer that way. Here, how about at this three-way intersection up here? Three points. A trio of random coordinates or a triangle of fear. Oh, the Bermuda Triangle? A beautiful spot off the Caribbean where you disappear for a weekend, or maybe forever. This thing has no idea where we are. Do people still think about the Bermuda Triangle? I thought that was a 1970s thing. Its diabolical geometry will never let you go. Okay, but we can't go to Bermuda and see this thing. But weird stuff is said to happen there. You know, planes disappearing and ships vanishing. Maybe we found our local concentration of weird energy. Guy Harrison, now you're a writer who investigates a lot of weird happenings. What's up with the Bermuda Triangle? I thought this legend was popular in the 1970s. Is it back? 
It's back with a vengeance. It seems to have peaked in the maybe late 70s, early 80s. And I thought it was dying a natural death. I really did. In the 90s, the early 2000s, I thought it was going away. But my suspicion is that a renaissance has been sparked thanks largely to all these pseudo-documentaries that keep popping up on cable TV, especially the History Channel. Rarely a week goes by without some mention or a full hour dedicated to the Bermuda Triangle mystery. <laughs> no, we should get the coordinates established right away. What are the coordinates of this Bermuda Triangle? What are the three points? Where are they? I have no idea. Nobody else does. <laughs> the, 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 the truth is there are, there, there's no such thing as official coordinates for the Bermuda Triangle because it doesn't officially exist by any credible organization. What's become over time by some strange convergence of irrational thought is the point of somewhere in South Florida around Miami. You draw a line up to Bermuda, then down to Puerto Rico, and then back to Miami. That's kind of become the conventional Bermuda Triangle. But some hardcore believers in it dispute those borders. They say they're much bigger, for example. So there's really no agreed upon Bermuda Triangle. And the story that we hear, we often hear about what happens in the Bermuda Triangle is a ship or a plane sets out and then it just vanishes completely. Is that is that typical? Yes. And isn't that just absolutely bizarre and unbelievable? Can you imagine a ship or a plane out of millions that go out over sea or on the sea? How in the world can you possibly explain some of them going missing? Well, that is what we're going to investigate right here. We want to keep an open mind about it because perhaps there is some mysterious energy that is centered on this section of the Caribbean causing these ships and planes to disappear. So we should look at it a little bit more carefully. Can you tell the story of Flight 19? Because that's actually a famous story. Right. That's probably the most famous Bermuda Triangle story. What it is, uh, 1946, five U.S. Navy Avengers, these are mid-sized torpedo bombers, went out on a routine training mission, just flying around South Florida from a base in Fort Lauderdale, and they vanished. Never heard from again. All five vanished. All five gone. And even the rescue plane that went after them vanished. Now, I can tell, because you're doing it with that mysterious lilt in your voice, that it's a big mystery as to what happened to them, or is it not? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great story, and it is a mystery, sort of, kind of, but not really, because here's most likely what happened, and it's the U.S. Navy's conclusion as to what happened. They went out, they were led by, their flight leader was newly assigned to that base, did not know the region at all, and they got lost, and it's very easy to get lost, and fortunately, it got dark, they were overseas, and the weather conditions deteriorated that evening, making sea ditching even more problematic because they might have been able to survive if they could have ditched at sea, got into their little life rafts. They might have been able to make it, but unfortunately, ditching at night in rough seas is just really, really, uh, it's a deadly thing to attempt. And that's probably what happened. I mean, they just don't have fuel to keep flying forever. It, it just seems like they met a tragic end. The, the point is, that's a sensible explanation. That made sense to the Navy who investigated it. It makes sense to most investigators who look into this. But to Bermuda Triangle believers, they say, no, no, it was aliens who snatched them up out of the sky to experiment on them. Or it was the lost city of Atlantis underneath the surface of the ocean there that zapped them and pulled them under. Or it was some strange black hole or an interdimensional time shift. They have all these explanations that are just extraordinary and have no evidence to support them. So it doesn't really make sense to reach that far. Now, what about the story, though, and it's put forth as evidence that when these ships go out and when these planes go out, 
something happens and their instruments go crazy and all the dials start spinning in, in a crazy fashion or they quit completely. Yeah, that's a very common little icing on the cake for many Bermuda Triangle stories. But if you investigate a little further, for example, Flight 19 is a, is a great one. If you look further into these stories, there's absolutely no record or no credible supporting documents or anything to show that this actually happened. Now, you know, Flight 19, almost every dramatization you see of it on these pseudo-documentaries, they will, they will show the pilots screaming into the radios, panicking and screaming about their instruments going haywire. If that was true, you'd think, my gosh, well, what was going on? This is really strange. But actually, none of that happened. They have the transcript of the communications between the tower in Fort Lauderdale and those pilots, and no such exchanges occurred. So what is the explanation for what happens to ships and planes when they head out to sea and they, and they vanish? It's weather, human error, and just the nature of the ocean. I mean, we can't forget. Yeah, it's the 21st century. We've been to the moon, all this stuff. But, you know, the ocean is still a very dangerous, formidable environment that we have not completely mastered and conquered. I grew up in South Florida right there on the, you know, waiting in the shores of the Bermuda Triangle. And I spent 20 years of my adult life in the Caribbean living in the Cayman Islands. And I know firsthand how dangerous the ocean can be. I've, uh, in the Cayman Islands, I've seen an entire community mourn the loss of fishermen who just went out to sea and never returned. You know, these things happen. People make mistakes. They get caught in storms. They just get lost. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous environment. And if, if nothing ever went wrong in the Bermuda Triangle, that would be evidence perhaps of something supernatural or paranormal going on. Okay, but to just point to a few missing people, a few missing planes and boats and say something weird's out there now, that, that's, it's absolutely not a credible claim. So finally, Guy, how do you explain the longevity of the Bermuda Triangle mythology, the idea that planes and ships are disappearing in this area of the Caribbean. Why does it have such a long shelf life? Because it's a great story. Nobody can resist it. I mean, no matter how big a skeptic you are, you still think it's kind of a cool story. You can't just ignore it and turn away. You want to hear it because it's a, it's a classic campfire tale. You know, the ship went out and never came back or was found drifting with its entire crew gone, an empty vessel floating adrift. You know, what's going on? How, what can it be? I mean, see, the, the, what we have to be aware of is that we as humans are storytelling machines and we are suckers for a good story. We cannot resist them. Guy Harrison, thank you so much for demystifying the Bermuda Triangle for us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Guy P. Harrison is a writer and author of 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True. Well, Molly, it seems the three-sided mother of all energy vortices doesn't exist. And in fact, neither do energy vortices at all. The central core for 300 billion stars engaged in a dynamic dance of destiny as they orbit endlessly at hundreds of miles per second around a supermassive black hole. We're definitely not driving to the center of the galaxy. How do you turn this thing off? Next time at the car rental agency, Seth, maybe ask for GPS instead of VPS, Vortex Positioning System. Yeah, you can be sure I won't go for this upgrade again. Well, guess what? We're back home. Thanks to the tremendous energy put forth by our larger-than-life production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Skeptic Check Energy Vortex.
You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science. How do you turn this thing off? Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.